today be one day that I know that we have visitors, and I want to welcome you in case you <clears throat> haven't heard. Uh, Pastor Walt and I have decided to take a rather fearless, headlong dive into a book that uh, not many preachers dare to tread in, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. When Pastor Walt began, uh, he had a list of sad songs that he that he looked up and gave you. What I thought was funny about that was that he, he pointed out that Ecclesiastes is a terribly depressing book, awfully depressing. But that sermon of him introducing it was one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And because uh, he went and looked up, he went and looked up all the sad songs that he could think of. And what was funny was that I knew those songs, too, but I knew them because my dad liked them. Walt likes them because Walt likes them. I, th- I just thought that was... He has the same music taste as my dad. I think that's funny. Glenn Campbell, the Carpenters, and so forth and so on. But as I was preparing uh, this one, I found out that uh, Ecclesiastes uh, really is not that fun. It isn't fun, and I just... Uh, I, 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 <laughs> I guess if I could tell you, if you're expecting fun, I guess you can go ahead and go. But uh, <clears throat> uh, we, we will. Uh, we, we said that this would be a fearless dive into this book, and uh, hang with me because uh, I think that uh, the end, the end of the book, the end of what Solomon is trying to get across to us, is so worthwhile to be able to hear. And of course, it is the gospel. It is His word, and it's never changed. So. I just wanted to start off by saying today that by Jesus' day, the kings that were placed over nations like Israel that were under the rule of the Roman Empire were basically Roman puppets, and that's how Rome did it. Rome decided that it it would not waste valuable resources on trying to rule the nations that they conquered themselves. They would enlist natives, if you will, uh, into ruling and, of course, the king that we knew in Jesus' day that was uh, ruling in Jesus' day, his name was Herod. They called him Herod the Great. He was great at a lot of things. He was great at building, but he was also great at being completely insane. Because we know most of him and about him because of one event in his reign, and that is that he ordered the massacre of every baby boy two years old and under in all the area of Bethlehem. Now, we don't know how many babies that were, that, that, that entailed. We don't know how many lives that that took that day. And, and we also know that Bethlehem is a very tiny, tiny, tiny village. But you have to understand that the population of Bethlehem was not constrained to the village itself. It was constrained to all the hills around it. And so when he ordered the massacre of those babies, it was all the families living in the hills of Bethlehem, all those shepherd families. All because three sages came from the east and told him that a new king was born. Secular history doesn't record the event. It doesn't refer to this atrocity. But I will tell you that nobody acquainted with Herod's life doubts him capable of doing this. He killed two brothers-in-law, his own wife, Mariamne, two of his own sons he killed. Five days before his death, he ordered the arrest of many citizens and decreed on the day that he died, they would all be executed to assure that there was a proper mourning state for his death in all of Israel when he died. Scarcely a day passed in Herod's reign where at least not one execution was carried out. 
In the annals of the Roman Senate, what they have written down and recorded about Herod is that when they came to report, when a general came to report one day of, uh, give the report of what was happening around and he's reporting to the Roman Senate, when asked about Herod, his words were, you don't turn your back on this guy. And this is what Rome felt about him. And it was warned 800 years ago to Israel that you don't want a king. The prophet Samuel came to them when Israel demanded a king and he listed the reasons and he told the reasons. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your food, he'll take your money, he'll take everything. And then he concludes by saying, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. They were warned 800 years ago that they wouldn't want a king. Because the primary focus for any king, especially back then, was to stay on the throne. And the danger of Israel's kings were was that they felt they were appointed by God to stay on the throne, when actually this was not God's idea at all, and Israel completely forgot, and the kings completely forgot, once they took power, that they were prophesied against, that God didn't want them on the throne. It was always God's intent for him to rule over Israel. And that's what he was trying to get across to Samuel, to get across to them. The threat of being overthrown in those days was constant. That threat, that fear is what drives all of history's kings. Some men handled it better than others, but all have been driven by it to an extent. You with me? To stay on the throne. And threats came from everywhere. They come from your own family. They come from family's family. They come from just uh, rebellion. It's always on the horizon in a dictatorship, if you will, in a kingship, if you will, in a monarchy. Even our shohelets in the book of Ecclesiastes, the words of the teacher, the preacher, even he had to make the decision. And when he did, he made the decision based on the threat. When his brother Adonijah came and asked his mother for the nurse that was given to David, Solomon decides this. He says, therefore, as the Lord lives, who's established me and placed me on the throne of my father, David, and who has made me a house, as he promised today, Adonijah shall be put to death. When Solomon came to make the decision on whether to carry out a brotherly love for Adonijah or not, He chose to stay on the throne and he eliminated the one threat that existed to his throne because Adonijah had a claim. The claim was, was that he was older than Solomon was. And Adonijah, Pastor Walt told us last week, had already made that claim to the throne. He already tried to ascend to the throne and he was thwarted when Nathan found out about it. And Bathsheba told David and David said, get Solomon on the throne now. So even Solomon. With all the wisdom of the world, even his rulership is driven by the threat to stay on the throne. I'd expect this from Saul. I'd expect this from any of a number of kings that follow Israel. You want to read depressing, depressing uh, devotions is when, when your devotions come up and you're going through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It is depressing. And to note that that was all set up by judges. 
I would expect this behavior from all of those other kings. But there was something supposed to be different about Solomon. Solomon was supposed to have something more that he would bring to the throne than just to bring his own selfish desires and to live it out on the backs of his people. Because Solomon had one thing that no other king had. It was something that he asked for. When his rulership got going, after David died, when everything is really cooking, God comes to Solomon and says, what do you want? Tell me what you want, and I will give it to you. And do you remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom. And God said this, he goes, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. And listen what he says after this. No one like you has been before you. There is nobody who has ever been who will be as wise as you. And there is no one like you shall arise after you. What is that saying about Solomon? Solomon is about to have given the qualities that no human has been given before and will not be given since. The wisdom that he has will not be surpassed by another human being. And it was not surpassed by any human being that had come before him. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because that's out of God's own mouth. So you'd think, this has to be different then. Something is going to be different about this king. Something's going to happen here. And he sets out to put that wisdom to use. We go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. He says, I, the teacher... When king over Israel in Jerusalem applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. Listen to what Solomon is saying. I set my mind to apply it to all the problems of mankind. He wanted to make a difference. He said it's an unhappy business. How many here agree it's an unhappy business that we've been given to walk this lot in life? How many agree? Only one. There's only one person who thinks this world is an unhappy place to be in. Really? Should I ask again? Two more. Okay, we got two people who know that this is an unhappy place. Okay. Solomon wants to make a difference. He wants to take all the wisdom that God has given to him and he wants to apply it to all the problems of mankind. He wants to make a difference. He wants to make it a better place. He wants to make Israel what he knows it can be. The promise that was given to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. That Israel would bless the entire earth. Solomon is ready to carry that out. And he's going to apply everything that God has given him in order to do so. The thing also then, God says after this, after he gives him his wisdom, is he said, since you didn't ask for wealth, I'm going to give that to you too. So now not only does he have the wisdom to carry out what is right and to make it different, he now has all the wealth and power to make it happen. All of it. To bring two together. Some people have wisdom, but they don't have the power to bring anything about. Some people have the power, but they don't have the wisdom or common sense of a two-year-old. Here it comes together. This is probably why it's considered that this, it, this is the most blessed reign in all of Israel. Unparalleled prosperity happens to Israel. Well, I would argue maybe not so much to Israel, but it happens at least to Solomon. His unparalleled prosperity. 
But not just to have the great innovative ideas, but also the wealth and the power to make them all a reality. Pastor Walt pointed out he engineered the Milo. He he built the temple. He built his own palace. With all the wisdom being the wisest of kings, you would hope this one will be different. This one will defy what Samuel said about kings in Israel. This would be the one. I, I love the point that Pastor Walt uh, brought up last, last week, and that was that Israel then begins to live vicariously through Solomon's wisdom and his wealth. Why is it we know exactly how much money he made every year? Why is it we know all of those things? Is because somebody from People Magazine is writing it down. We're just as obsessed. We love hearing about what we don't have. Did you know that one of the most popular subjects in America, in America, who 250 years ago threw off the coil of the English monarchy, still our favorite thing to hear about is the English monarchy. We're fascinated with royalty. We're fascinated with power and with kings and with wealth and everything else. MTV takes you into their homes. Robin Leach took us and introduced us to their lifestyles. We're no different today. With all the wisdom being the wisest of kings, you'd hope that this one would be different. That he was going to do something with this. And he starts out at least to one who felt that wisdom had a shot at making this happen. That his wisdom had a shot. I applied my mind to all the problems. But certainly finds that there are some things that wisdom come up, comes up against that he can't do anything. Did it work? He said, I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and a chasing after wind. I came across one translation that I love that said, futility, futility, utterly, utterly futile. Anything that's under the sun, anything that has to do with this planet, anything that has to do with you and me trying to live on this planet and make it better, he said, it's all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made what? Cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be what? Cannot be counted. There's a void in this world. There's a void in this world that cannot be filled. And it cannot be filled by wisdom. It cannot be filled by wealth. It can't be filled with power. It can't be filled by kings and queens who even have the best of intentions. There are some things that cannot be fixed. And this is what Solomon concludes. No matter how it's applied... Wisdom can't fix this. This is what he decided after I don't know how many years of trying to do it. And he just said, it can't be done. He says, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to no wisdom, to no madness and folly. And I perceive that this also, this too, he says, is a chasing after the wind. Even the attempt to do so. He said, is a chasing after the wind. You might as well try to run and catch the wind. There's something crazy. There's a madness in this world that makes even having wisdom and trying to apply wisdom futility, utter futility. Wisdom, what could be the greatest tool in the human arsenal. How many here have not prayed 
Is there anybody here who have not at one time in your life prayed the same prayer Solomon had? Lord, give me wisdom. Because we thought that was it. We thought that wisdom was the magic bullet. And I think it can be. Certain types of wisdom. Certainly in this country. I think education is the silver bullet. It's the answer to all of our problems. It can be, at least. Wisdom. Knowledge. Acquiring. We've all prayed this. It's the greatest tool in the human arsenal. It's the best weapon we have. Solomon comes to a different conclusion about it. He says, but in much wisdom there is much what? Vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Jewish Publication Society's translation says, for as wisdom grows, vexation grows. And to increase learning is to increase heartache. Are there some things that you wish you didn't know? There are a lot of things I wish I didn't know. We talk about, in this church, the mission trips that we would like everybody to go on. Pastor Walt and Brenda are heading to India. They spent some while in Africa. We spent some time in the Dominican Republic. There are a lot of things that I wish I didn't know. That I didn't know before I went, and now I know, and I wish I didn't. Do you understand what he's saying? That what we think is a blessing, what we think can cure, wisdom can, can be applied and we think we can do something about it and we can make it better. The wisest man who ever lived said, I've tried, I've tried. And all it brought was what? All it brought was pain. Now, he's not talking about all knowledge. He's not talking about all learning. Okay. If your child tells you that Pastor Greg said, I don't have to go to school anymore because it will only cause heartache, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Solomon is saying either. Okay? But it's incredible. The more you know, the more it hurts. I don't think he's referring to everyday knowledge. I don't think he was referring to school. We need to learn and to know more, uh, all that we can. Go to school. Get all the education you can. It's just that understand and know that it isn't going to be the cure to the one thing this world lacks. There's a madness to this world that cannot be filled. And he said, and wisdom can't do it. Wisdom cannot do it. The teacher, the preacher, the Kohelet as king and what he wanted to accomplish. You have to remember who he was and what he wanted to do. Solomon said in that when, he, when God asks him what he wants, listen to his words. He says, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love, given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O oh Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, although I'm only a little child. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I don't know what I'm doing, he says. David knew what he was doing. My father knew what he was doing. And I thought that I wanted this. But now that I'm here, I don't know what I'm doing. Your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen. A great people, so numerous they can't be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? He wants to make a difference. He wants to serve as he governs. 
His wisdom, he believes, can transcend what Samuel said a king would demand of all Israel. A king would be, who could be more than somebody who would just live out his own selfishness on the backs of the people that he rules. And did it work? He tried. And he says, no. It vexed him. It caused him heartache. It caused him pain. Because his wisdom was saying that he could make a difference and the world was telling him your wisdom makes no difference. Even to the point to where he ended up being the very king that he didn't want to be when he sat out to do so. So he says, all right, what does wisdom tell me to do next? Well, it's sad, but it says this. I said to myself then, come now, I'll make a test of what? I'll make a test of pleasure. I've tried wisdom. Didn't work. So I'll make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this was also what? This was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I told you this wasn't going to be fun today. Okay. I searched my mind with how to cheer my body with wine and my mind still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold of folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven for the few days of their lives. So what's he trying? The pain and heartache that his wisdom was bringing him, he now decides to escape it. If I can't change it, I will escape it. And in this particular case, he uses what? He uses wine. Now, if this book was written today... He would have access to the thousands of ways that modern man has come up with to escape. The thousands of addictions and habits and and hang-ups that we've come to rely on just to get us through the day. Solomon's hang-up was what? Was wine. So we'll just stick with this one for now. I will tell you, for anyone who's battled an addiction, they will tell you one thing, that wisdom or lack of it has pretty much nothing to do with the addiction they're entangled with. Would you be surprised to know that most addicts and alcoholics have IQs that are off the charts? It's because it has nothing to do with being stupid or smart. Are they stupid decisions? Yes, they are. But it has nothing to do with their wisdom or their IQ. And I just ask, be very careful. Be very careful when we hear of someone battling one of these Be very careful to judge them as not being very smart. Because it isn't about smart and stupid. Addiction is beyond this. Addiction is what Solomon says it is. The crooked ways can't be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He says earlier that all the rivers flow into the ocean and the ocean is never filled up. It's never enough. In fact, wisdom may get in your way. If you're trying to make a decision on whether or not you, you have an addiction or you should be battling it, the decision to be able to, to begin to recover from that rather than to begin to, to, to continue to live the lifestyle, wisdom will get in your way. Because wisdom will always tell you there's a way out of this. Wisdom will always say, you know what, you're smarter than this. Just get smart and you can get out of this. And it, and it completely, completely is in conflict with, the, with what you need to do, and that is get out of the denial. And I have to say, 
My addiction has become unmanageable, and there's nothing I can do about it. That's what Solomon is doing today. He said, there's nothing I can do. Note what he says about the wine. My mind was still guiding me with wisdom, and yet he was doing it anyway. Solomon's telling you, it doesn't have anything to do with the mind. It's got everything to do with whatever it is you're trying to escape from. And Solomon's trying to escape the heartache and the pain that he realizes that he's not enough, that his wisdom isn't enough. It can't fix what's happening. It can't fix what's going on in this world. He becomes the king that he did not want to become when he started. He wanted to make a difference. He wanted to serve. And he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. For who? For myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Myself, myself, made for myself. He becomes the very king that everyone else becomes. Live out his selfishness on the backs of the people that he rules. Why? Because he can do it. He's got the wisdom and he has the power. And it does not overcome the real problem of what's happening. He says, the real problem, what's happening, my wisdom can do nothing about. You know, maybe houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and orchards and pools, that's not that bad. Except he, he acknowledges next what may be the real sin in it and the problem with a human king and what a human king will do. I bought male and female what? Male and female slaves had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had, had been seen before in Jerusalem. Generations of slaves born in his house. It's not something he's proud of. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. Pastor Walt told us how many were there? A thousand. Along with how many wives? So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Note what he said. I didn't lose my wisdom. I didn't lose my wisdom and, and, and go off this. This wasn't just a stupid decision. It's my wisdom was not enough to keep me from this. My wisdom would not trump my nature. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Every king would justify it from now on. Every person justifies our greed from now on. As long as we toil over it, as long as we work over it, then it's justified. It doesn't matter if it's greed. I'm sorry I'm beginning to hit close to home because I hit close to home with me. We all justify our greed as long as we worked our tails off for it. And Solomon is finding that out. Solomon is finding out that my wisdom cannot trump my nature. He gives in. And this may be the real sin, is that it was done on the backs of his people. 
They estimate they can't be 100% sure, but they estimate the number of slaves that it took to build the Milo and to build the temple. And it's in the high millions. There's a real human cost to his indulgence as king. And this is what Samuel said the real problem was with having a king, is that someone will have to pay for the king's indulgence, for the king's need to stay powerful enough to rule. All this was sanctioned by his wisdom, and his wisdom, what did his wisdom tell him in the end? That this was a reward for my toil. He deserved this because he had the responsibility of being king, of carrying forward David's promise to all his people. You talk about carrying a heavy burden. Pastor Walt pointed that out last week. Just being David's son might have been enough burden to kill any one of us. Solomon carried it the rest of his life. And he thinks that this all now is a reward for it. The selfishness, the greed, the lust, it'll all be justified because he has the burden of being king. A burden that God told him 900 years ago he had in mind for no man, no human. It's the problem of being a human king. So Solomon realizes something now as he's looking back. I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had spent in doing it, and again all was vanity and a chasing after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what already has been done. We're stuck, he says. We're stuck because I have the same nature that my father Adam did and my wisdom can do nothing about it. Everything that he had done, all the wisdom that he had tried and then turning his his life over to pleasure and everything else, everything that he had tried and done, he says, it's all a chasing after the wind because there is something here that cannot be trumped. There is something inside of us that cannot be overcome. Our nature is our nature, Solomon is saying, and my wisdom could do nothing about it. And this is why he says that anything under the sun is not new. Anything under the sun is utter, utter futility. You and I can try all we want. We can try all we want. We can be as wise as Solomon. And he's trying to tell you, I am as wise as Solomon, and it doesn't work. See, for the next 12 chapters, Solomon is going to explore these themes. The usefulness of wisdom. Humans mean to address this unhappy business we are given to deal with. For the next 12 chapters, he's going to deal with all of this. But he's going to conclude this way. In Ecclesiastes 12, he's going to say the end of the matter, all has been heard. When all has been heard, he says. There's another version that said when everything has been seen and heard, he says what? Fear God. Keep his commandments. For that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And don't worry, Pastor Walt and I are going to spend a lot of time in this passage. We're going to spend a couple of studies on this. But in the end, after all is said and done, what does he say? All we got is what? All we got is God. He said, and that's what my wisdom should have told me in the first place. 
But my wisdom said to press on. My wisdom said that something could be done. I thought that I was strong enough to do something about this, to do something about my nature, about human nature, about everybody that I was ruling, to make Israel the blessing that they were supposed to be. And what I found out was that nature cannot be trumped by human means. Willpower, wisdom, good deeds, none of it can trump our nature. All we have is what we had in the beginning, and all we have is what we will have in the end. God. All we got is to be able to lay it at His feet. See, if there's nothing I can do, Solomon is saying, then what I do is that I take that entire futility that I live my entire life with, and it doesn't matter what it looks like. It is what it is. He's, he's not holding back. He's not holding back. Wouldn't you love to have Solomon in your 12-step group? He ain't holding back. He may be a poet about it. He has very colorful language about it. But he tells you exactly what his problem is. And he's saying, all I got is to be able to bring it to who? To bring it to God. And what will God do with it? He will judge it, whether it's good or whether it's evil. I think that's my favorite part right there. Whether it's good or whether it's evil. I think we all can judge whether it's good or whether it's evil. But somehow Solomon feels that he could trust God with this. It doesn't matter if it's good or if it's evil. It doesn't matter what it's been. It doesn't matter who has done it. All we have is to lay it at God's feet. See, I don't know if Solomon realized what his father was talking about. I don't know if he knew what or who David meant when David wrote this. But David said to God, he says, Swear to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. This is the promise that was made to David. He says, One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now, that could mean any of the sons that David had. That could mean Adonijah. That could mean Solomon. That could mean Absalom. That can be Amnon. It could be any of those. Except, he says, If your sons kept my covenant, my decrees that I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. There's only one of David's sons that sits on the throne forever. So I don't know if Solomon thought that the, that this psalm was about him. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know what Solomon has in mind when he says, I'm going to lay this all at God's feet. But I do know that there is only one of David's sons that sits on the throne forever. And that fruit of David is exactly why Solomon conclude what Solomon has concluded. Let God be judge. Let God rule. Let God be king. Let God put his own son, whose human body, by the way, will be a fruit or a son of David. And in that matter, all will be concluded. You see, another wise Israeli teacher, another Kohelet, if you will, another teacher, another preacher came to the same conclusion Solomon did about 1,300 years later. Paul says in Romans 7, he goes, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I what? I cannot do it. Do you hear Solomon's words? I saw everything under the sun and I had all the wisdom of any man that's ever been given and I could do nothing about it. Not for them and then I couldn't do anything about it for me. Paul says there's nothing I can do. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I do not want, is what I do. Solomon did the same thing. The very thing. He wanted to make a difference. He wanted to be different. He could be different. He could be even more different than David was. And he could not do it when it came to his end. Because his wisdom would not trump his nature. And Paul here is talking about his nature. If it's what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it. But what? But my nature, my sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close in hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members, in my body, in this thing that I'm walking around with, another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Solomon sees a void. He sees, a, he sees something that cannot be overcome. He sees, he sees an ocean that cannot be filled. He sees something wrong with humanity that nothing in humanity itself can fix. And Paul is talking about that here too. And when Solomon says, in the end, you need to fear God. In the end, you need to lay it at God. Paul asks the same question. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. There's nothing I can do about it. I've got to lay it at God's feet. There's nothing I can do. And while Solomon in that psalm may have thought that it was talking about him, we know that in that psalm, God was talking about his own son on his throne. And after he comes to the conclusion that he, ha- he can get to God through Jesus Christ our Lord and that, and that with his mind he can still will what is good, but he understands that his nature will always be there and there's nothing he can do about his nature. Nothing he can do. So he lays his deeds, both good and evil. He lays his nature at God and God judges it with these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's come to the exact same conclusion that Solomon did. I got nowhere else to go but God. You know, and it doesn't matter whether the deeds are good or evil. Even our good deeds are evil. Martin Luther once said, take the most selfless, good, kind act you could ever commit from the bottom of your heart and God will forgive you for it anyway. Even our good deeds are evil. And we like to look at Ecclesiastes and we like to look at Solomon and we would like to judge because we'd like to feel better about ourselves. Well, I may be bad, but I don't have 700 concubines. It's not the deeds. It's what can be done about them or what can't be done about them. Solomon concludes in his wisdom, all he's got is to go back to God and say, I wish it was different. I wish my life was different. I really do. But I got something in me. I got a void in me that I can do nothing about. Nothing. And I'm here at your mercy. You judge. And a while ago, God did judge this planet. He judged you and me. He judged our deeds. And He decided to take every one of them and to hang them on that cross. So that when we bring Him to Him and we are judged, we find no condemnation. 
because we are in Christ Jesus. If you're still trying to do something about it, the preacher who gathers sentences and gathers people together to hear those sentences is telling you today, I'm the wisest man that ever lived, and I'm telling you now, there's nothing you can do. You might as well be trying to chase the wind. If you're trying to do something about your nature, if you're trying to do something about your sin, you're chasing after the wind. In the end, all we got is God. That's all we have. God wanted to be ruler of Israel because he said the only ones, the only people, the only king that is fit to rule my people is somebody who loves them as much as I do. And in Jesus, he found his king. That's why he is king of kings and Lord of lords. The only one that's allowed to judge is the one that loves you with more love than you can ever imagine. That's why it doesn't matter to him whether or not the deeds were good or evil. And quit trying to kid yourself that we've got some good deeds to balance out the evil deeds. Solomon is saying that is vanity. That is a chasing after the wind. Solomon is telling all of us today, quit chasing the wind and come to God. You're carrying a burden around that God never designed for you to carry, and he doesn't want you to carry it one second longer. Lay it at Jesus' feet. Does he know how evil it is? Sure he does. Are you telling him anything he doesn't already know? No. All he's waiting for us to do is to tell him and to lay it at his feet. We can get there the same way that Solomon got there. The thing about the book of Ecclesiastes, as depressing as it is, I do believe that it was written by Solomon himself. What is Solomon doing when he writes out all of this and holds nothing back? That he may put it in poetic language, but when he lays out his sin before God and he decides he's going to lay it at God's feet and let God judge, whatever happens, good or evil, it doesn't matter, I get, because my wisdom can do nothing. My good deeds can do nothing. My willpower can do nothing about it. What he's doing in Ecclesiastes is that he's written out his confession. Jesus is telling us today, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins. And not only that, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All of our evil deeds we bring to him. And not only, not only are now are we forgiven of them, it's as if they've never happened. We don't walk around forgiven sinners. We walk around righteous because Jesus Christ announced it and said that it was so. And all you have to do is what? All you have to do is have faith enough to tell him. That's all we got to do is have faith enough to tell him. Confession isn't a pain or a price that we pay in order to receive forgiveness. It's just an acknowledgement that he is God, which Solomon does in the entire book. The one hope that Ecclesiastes holds out for us is that you got God waiting for you at the end of your confession. The words of the preacher, the words of the teacher, 
It's all vanity. But we got Jesus. We come to him as Solomon did. We come to him as Paul did. We come to him as John did. All pretty wise guys. All pretty smart guys. All guys who tried to do it themselves. And all of them in their own way write out their own book of Ecclesiastes and come to us today saying, it's all vanity. If you've got a problem, if you have a problem with God taking all these evil deeds of Solomon and, 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 and wrapping them up and condemning them, judging them and condemning them, and allowing Jesus' righteousness to forgive and to be given to him as a gift. If you've got a problem with that, then guess what? Your wisdom is having you chase after the wind. Put your wisdom away, Solomon is saying. It doesn't make sense. It never will. It doesn't make sense to a human. It's why we're given eternity to try to figure it out. And at the end of eternity, God will come and say, guess what? You still haven't got it figured out. Human wisdom is not a, is not a sword. It's not a tool. It's, you can't figure this out. I know what is right, but I can't do it. Jesus says, I know. Bring it to me. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive them and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Let him judge. Trust him today with all your good and all your evil. The words of the preacher. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us together today. We thank you that Ecclesiastes, while hard to look at and to read, and the realization that the reason that it's hard is because Solomon's life is our life. His life is every life that has been lived under the sun. And that we all have wine and folly and madness and wisdom to bring to you. And that we all have deeds, both good and evil, to bring to you. We all want to listen truly to the wisdom that Solomon has for us, Lord, and to come to you today. Help us. Help us to confess. Help us to, to lay the deeds before you, not carry them one second more. We thank you for the forgiveness and the atonement that Jesus brings. And we thank you especially for the words of the preacher that points them out to us today. We thank you that we were gathered together for such a purpose. Help us to live, Lord, with the faith and the forgiveness that you would have us walk in. Help us to live as people truly cleansed of their unrighteousness. And let us do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.